Greetings from Portland, Oregon, and welcome to Poetry Cast. My name is Jonathan Stone, and I'll be your host for this show. This is the very first of what I hope will be an engaging and worthwhile series of casts where we'll be discussing poetry and touching a bit on literary theory. For this program, we're going to start with a brief introduction of translation theory. Then I'm going to read you a few poems written by the Chilean poet Pablo Neruda. First, I'll read his original, and then follow with my own translation. But before all that, I'd like to open with a quote from one of Neruda's contemporaries, T.S. Eliot. Eliot proclaimed that art never improves, but the material of art is never quite the same. This quote sums up my own aesthetic theory, and since Eliot said it first, and let's face it, said it best, I'll just stick with his words to introduce my own. I've been translating Neruda's sonnets for the past year now, and though I've only gotten through the first 32, I've noticed that as I transform his words and his thoughts into my own, that I transform as well. That not only are my words and the way I wield them now altered from what they were before, but my own self has altered with them from what it was before. Since we think through language, if our language changes, do our thoughts not also change? When I read Neruda's work, I hear him speaking to me. But I think, and this might sound a bit odd, but I think that my translations also speak to him, and he listens to me whisper through the gales of literary art. His first 32 poems are collectively titled Manana, which is performative in its utterance as it performs the same function as the rising sun upon the new day. It eases the eyes into the brilliance that is yet to follow the striking dawn. Not only do the first 32 sonnets work to introduce the other 68, but they also introduce Neruda's experience with love and what amounts to fear and death for the poet. I would go so far as to allege that his 100 sonnets are nearly epic in their function. If understood as an epic tale of love, the hero of the sonnets is female, perhaps lover, perhaps muse, and through her love and beauty, the heroine rescues the stumbling man from his own insignificance. She is Beatrice of Chile, leading the confused hominid to an angelic paradise. I mentioned earlier how I touch on some translation theory. I suppose I should start where translation was once considered one of the highest forms of art, that is, during 18th century England. During that time, John Dryden was, and, well, still is, considered one of the greatest writers to emerge from that century. He wrote extensively of translation, and he conveniently divided the act of translation into three categories. He termed metaphrase, paraphrase, and imitation. Metaphrase literally means word for word, and Dryden describes metaphrase as the lowest form of translation. They loved hierarchy back then, didn't they? Paraphrase, according to Dryden, is when a writer takes a poem from one language and, in a sense, places it within another. And lastly, imitation is Dryden's highest form of translation. But I suspect it doesn't so much refer to a literal imitation of another work as I believe it refers to a term we are more familiar with, that is influence. These terms remind me of something that the Argentinian writer and contemporary of both Eliot and Neruda, Jorge Luis Borges, discusses in the book This Craft of Verse, which is a collection of transcripts of several of Borges' lectures on literature, mostly on writing poetry. In that book, Borges mentions how the German language has, like Dryden, three different words for translation. Um dicton, which means a poem woven around another, Nachdicton, which means an after poem, more or less, and Übersetzung, which is a mere translation, according to Borges. Dryden's metaphrase is very similar to the German Übersetzung, and likewise paraphrase is analogous to Nachdicton. And lastly, Um dicton seems to imply a poem responding to another poem, 
A writer speaking with another writer through the literary medium, a collaboration, if you will, very similar to Dryden's imitation. But does this not also define the term influence quite nicely? I would say Neruda's work influenced me to take his poems and place them within my own language. Therefore, I'd like to think, to some degree, that not only did I butcher Neruda's poems in the process, but I also employed Dryden's highest form of translation, that is, imitation, as I worked with Neruda's poetry. In other words, Dryden's imitation functions as Borges' un dicton and also as my influence. I'd woven my words around Neruda's as I actually employed a bit of all three forms, from both Dryden's triad and the German as well. To better clarify, here's an example of how I employed all three forms. <clears throat> Very loose example. If one of Neruda's lines sounded beautiful word for word when placed into English, then I translated it word for word. If it didn't sound quite right, then I paraphrased it and tried my best to capture his meaning in the most beautiful English that I could muster. In the end, I realized that all three forms of translation from both triads are absolutely necessary to the art of translation. Furthermore, I'd even like to consider the German triad as a translation of sorts by Borges, of, by Borges excuse me, of Dryden's triad. Even if Borges never had Dryden in mind when he mentioned the German triad, they both still influence one another, as here in this discussion, across not only linguistic barriers, but across chronistic ones as well. I'd like to think of them as having collaborated to produce their theories. Right now, you just heard how I've added my own thoughts on translation and, in effect, managed to collaborate with both Dryden and Borges, as I did with Neruda on the following poem I'm going to read to you now. <clears throat> this is the first sonnet in Neruda's series, 100 Sonnets. He doesn't title them, he merely numbers them. Matilda. Nombre de planta o piedra o vino. De lo que nace de la tierra y dora. Palabra en cuyo crecimiento amanece. En cuyo estío estalla la luz de los limones. En ese nombre corren navios de madera. Rodeados por enjambres de fuego azul marino. Y esas letras son el agua de un río. Que desemboca en mi corazón calcinado. Un nombre descubierto bajo una enredadera, como la puerta de un túnel desconocido, que comunica con la frecuencia del mundo. O oh, invádame con tu boca abrazadora, indájame si quieres con tus ojos nocturnos, pero en tu nombre déjame navegar y dormir. Well, forgive me for my less than perfect accent, but I hope you were still able to enjoy Neruda's first poem from his collection of Cien Sonatas de Amor. Now I'd like to share my interpretation of his first sonnet with you. Matilda, name a fruit or fossil or wine. From this word emerged the earth, the enduring word within whose swelling dawn, within whose bursts grow the yellow of lemons. Within this name steer bodies of wood surrounded by waves of aqueous flames. These letters fill the riverbeds that terminate within my calcified chest. O name discovered beneath the manifest sea like a door of an unknown tunnel, exhaling to release the breath of the earth. O lash this vessel with your foaming tongues, examine this animal with your panther's eyes, but in your name leave me to sail and to sleep. 
As I hope you heard, I tried to remain faithful to Nuru's work with my use of alliteration. Of course, the sounds I repeated were not the same as the ones he did, but I wanted to achieve a similar effect upon the reader or listener, as the case may be here. In his poem, just in the first few lines, you hear such a rich array of sounds echo one another, such as nombre, piedra, lo que nace de, etc. My attempt to imitate his alliteration resulted in a similar employment of assonance and consonants, such as a fruit, fossil, from this word emerged, the earth, enduring, etc. My use of consonants is heard in the sounds and of assonance in the is, ahs, and ers. I'd like to take this opportunity to explain why I chose certain words over other, perhaps more obvious choices. For example, in Neruda's first line, you hear nombre de planta o piedra o vino. However, though my line is translated almost word for word or metaphrasically, I chose to use the English word fossil instead of the more literal translation for the Spanish piedra, which would be stone. So first of all, I chose fossil over stone for the way it sounds. The alliteration within that word is so much smoother when lit off the tongue than the monosyllabic stone. Secondly, I like the connotation of fossil, which has associations with ancient, now extinct creatures whose footprints are nevertheless still found on, not only in petrified earthly casts, but also in the DNA, literally in the blood of their modern descendants. And it seems that these are the very associations implied by Neruda as he describes Matilda. It's almost an Edenic association. She becomes like the biblical Eve, the mother of all of us, only she seems even more divine, almost godlike, as it was for Matilda that emerged the earth, the enduring word. The lines are also suggestive, suggestive excuse me, of ripening fruit, fertility, sensual, almost erotic. Furthermore, I like the way the word fossil sets up the rest of the poem. The speaker discovers ruins buried beneath the sea, describes his calcified chest, buried like a living fossil beneath his flesh, and then relates his encounter with Matilda in such a prey and predator manner. It is that which lies at the very foundation of evolution, which itself was in turn created by man from the discovery and study of the remains of extinct animals. Talk about depth. Neruda. Moreover, in the search for love, are we not all at times prey and at others predator, constantly acting on the stage of evolution in the interest of our survival? Neruda's poem suggests that love is not all that innocent, and that at the heart of our romantic endeavors lies an instinctual desire to survive and to procreate that we cannot suppress, but can and must succumb to. Well, I think that we'll have to end this program on that impossibly complex notion. That would require dissertation, pretty much, for us to gather even a nominal understanding. At the same time, though, Neruda's poem says quite a bit about that aspect of love, even if we can't translate it into a prosaic explanation, does it not? Thank you for listening to Poetry Cast. This was the first cast of the series, and next time we'll continue a bit further into the depths of Neruda's work and explore other major themes found within his sonnets. I hope to also discuss his work in the context of other contemporaries of his time, such as one of my favorites, Federico Garcia Lorca. If you'd like to contact me about the show with any comments or suggestions, just email me at poetrycast at yahoo.com. And for more information on any of the poets I mentioned, I encourage you to check out poets.org. Or for more in-depth reading of Neruda's, Borges' or Dryden's work, you could, of course, visit the library. Until next time, hasta luego, and thanks for listening.